Hello, this is Coffee Dave once again, bringing you the third part of Only Small Actors. We begin at chapter 17, which is called Begora. Seymour found himself with a problem, a big problem. Except for nitpicking internet critics, almost all of them self-proclaimed auteurs just waiting for the right script with which to prove their mettle. The exigency of newspaper criticisms required a relatively spare number of words to advise the public as to where to plunk their entertainment dollar. That was not conducive to encouraging a mention of the bit players who his program was to salute. He had to rely on the aforementioned internet chappies who seemed more touchy than a chafed harlot behind in her rent. It was that or think pieces from magazine wallas, who apparently had more on their mind than the four minutes of screen time of Hair X or Mademoiselle Y. In addition, he was being accused of xenophobia as there had not been established an award for foreign cinema. He corrected that quickly after a visit from a relation of Bitsy, Uncle Padraig, who insisted on employing Gaelic phrases whenever a Celt was in the room. While Bitsy was in the kitchen opening a bottle of red breast after the black bush was empty, Uncle Padraig described a girl in a German film and was so graphic about what he would like to do with her that the phrase Sodom and Bigora seemed appropriate. Seymour, attending a screening of the thing, spent three hours being irritated beyond measure with the folk of the film, except for Fraulein Betty Gable. Who the hell was Betty Gable? He checked with SAG after an equity. Then he went to the producers of the flick and found she was an American beauty rose. He shamelessly plugged her to the Committee for Foreign Entries, and to a man they were enthusiastic. He was not sure whether it was her acting or her person. Well, there was at least one nominee he could be sure of. 18. Bilon Bybels Make an old lady happy, darling. Try the balloons. They just came in on the red eye with Jodie Foster. She should live and be well. The mother shucker behind the counter was Bubi Rifka. At least it was embroidered on her house dress. But he was sure he had seen her elsewhere. Take away the glasses, wig, and mole. Voila! The naughty nurse in Ass Bandits 4, your ass in a sling. Apparently Nita made a specialty of naughty nurse roles. She auditioned for Hatchet Victim Number 5 in Chop Shop 2 and was quite fetching with her closely cropped blonde hair and full figure. He almost used her, but the dyke casting director ixnayed the asking K. He wondered whether it was only because of Nita's triple X work. Sometimes he wished his memory was not good. A willing suspension of disbelief would be an excellent thing to have in this town. Then one could believe that the car park, the waitress, 
the dental hygienist, or for that matter, the neurosurgeon was just that, and not someone merely working their day job until the right role came along. He watched Bubba Rivka, a.k.a. Nita Naughty, rapidly relieve a dozen little necks of their top shells and recalled how those facile fingers performed in her Porny Award-winning specialty Triple X box set. It included the dramatic An Enema of the People, the spectacular Titanic colonic, and of course the charmingly innocent, all-singing, all-dancing High Stool Musical number two. He prayed she washed thoroughly before this shift. Candy pushed her oyster assortment at him and leered. You better have some of these, honey. You know what they say about bivalves. And she giggled a throaty laugh that seemed to come from somewhere far below her larynx. He saw her sitting with Marjorie Pittman when he came in and first scoped the place. Meyer Lansky smiled the smile of the professional greeter. Byron guessed that the wattage was somewhere in Myers' mid-range, not nearly as bright or perhaps as worshipful as for an A-list director, but certainly more than would be accorded to the average schlockmeister. Byron described that to serial lover. Meyer and his significant other, whoever that might be, had probably seen it on the first weekend. Mr. Bannister, I just adore Serial Lover. When is it coming out on disc? I can't wait to hear your commentary. Thought so. In the spring, hope to have some sequences in it that we had to cut for uh, time constraints. Let me know how you like it with the excised scenes. And Byron knew how the movie would be with Coffin back in. It would go from just okay to one with some grip on the heart. And speaking of grip, Marjorie Pittman excused herself for a Botox session, and as soon as she exited the door, Byron felt a firm hand gripping him high on his right thigh and was glad he dressed to the left. I thought she would never leave, Candy slurred. She had apparently started her afternoon with a few glasses of Chablis and was into her third. She began to knead his flesh, and not finding any reaction, the minks moved north. Byron was premedicated with Cialis and did not want to be wanting when push came to uh, enter. If she rubbed him the wrong way now, however, he might have difficulty walking through the dining room without knocking over wine glasses. He had to distract her and fast. He looked with desperation for a familiar face that he could table hop to and get Candy's claw off his pudendum. He spotted the Harris boys. He also saw the Hameds. Chapter 19. Brothers. He took Candy's hand in his and brushed his lips against her palm and then surreptitiously licked it. Wait right here. I have to say hello to these guys or they'll get a knot in their boxers. And he slid off the stool and headed over to the Harris party. They half rose and he motioned them to sit and pulled a chair out from under a tourist. So, where are we with our friend Albert? Did the judge review those high school tapes? The hardest part was finding a beta player, grumbled Ben. Lucky I remembered Lupe in travel as the cheapest husband in the world. He never gets rid of anything, Lupe says. 
has a Gibson refrigerator from 1947. Just keeps repairing it. Lupe says if the Iceman was still around, they'd have an icebox. Anywho, says Jack, I tell Lupe that we'll buy them a combo of VHS DVD for the beta. And by the next day, we are grooving to a high school production of The Music Man from long ago. Ben continued. We fast forward to the part where Albert sings Gary, Indiana, and he starts as a boy soprano, and he finishes as Vaughn Monroe. It's the funniest damn thing I've seen since since Caesar retired. Then we look at the rest of the tapes, and Albert sounds like he does today. We take the whole schmear to the judge, and for once, the lawyers shut up. Yeah, wasn't that a pisser? Jack smiled the smile of one who's going to receive his 10% again. Our friend is back in the business called show, and none too soon. Did you see what the poor Schmendrick's been driving? The only thing it's missing is a wire clothes hanger radio antenna. Ah, I forgot. You don't have a car radio. 20. Bling. Candy told Rivka to bring a bottle and looked as if she might just take a swig from it, but manners prevailed and she used her glass. She looked pointedly at Byron as he rose from the Harris table and he tried to placate her with raised palms and indicated that he needed a confab with the Hameds. The Krakowers and Privarty Hamed were not on good terms. They both had the hots for a place overlooking the Pacific and had been maneuvered into a bidding war from which neither would back down. The bad blood did not cease when, before either could close the deal, a drenching rain washed the place's minimal foundations away and it was last seen floating toward Catalina. Notwithstanding the financial pounding both dodged, they ground their molars whenever the name of the other was mentioned. That they were in the same room today might be ascribed to Privarti's wishing to scout out the shellfish competition at Katz. Both brothers were dressed alike, but otherwise looked completely different. Byron reflected that he had never seen a fraternal twin so completely unlike his fellow, and yet dressed the same. Had they planned it? Even their bling was the same, each with several diamond rings on their fingers, each with an earring, and each with a diamond-encrusted Vedic symbol around their neck, despite being ostensibly Muslim. Byron did not understand it at all. Suvarti, the Harris boys just told me the suit against our friend Mr. Coffin was thrown out. We can use that footage on the DVD, and we may get a cutty out of it. Both men looked glum. I know it's not a Z-Gold Bollywood award, he murmured with the slightest of sneers in his voice. It isn't that. Byron looked at the Captain Cat's terrific tish of trafe, as it was termed on the menu, a three-tiered affair with a sampling of raw and cooked items forbidden to the pious Jew, but feasted on by seagulls, shagets, and shiksas alike. Ahmed's both opined that the same plate at Vladimir's was not only slightly less dear, but came with decidedly better accompaniments and sauces. Okay, boys, what's the problem? Silently, Privarti reached into his pocket and extracted an envelope, opened it, and handed a headshot to Byron. We both want her, said Suvarti. 
Well, you'll have to get, dig her up then. This is Louise Brooks, and she died about 20 years ago. No, it's not. It's Betty Gable. You mean Grable, don't you? The cast list says Betty Gable, but we can't find her in the actors' unions or anywhere else for that matter. We have a call into the production company, but they haven't gotten back to us. Oh, oh, hello, Seymour. Seymour Weintraub looked over Byron's shoulder at the picture, and Byron handed it to him. Remarkable resemblance. Even has the freckles, though I'm told she's a blonde and they used a wig. Yes, murmured Suvarti in a dreamy voice. A natural blonde. Well, uh, just like Brooks, she's from Kansas, and apparently she went right back to Kansas State as soon as they finished her part. She hasn't been seen since. Prevarti rose and clutched Seymour's shoulder as if he thought the man would run away. What's her name? he demanded loudly. Betty Boop, answered Seymour brightly, and for his trouble, he was punched in the face. 21. Bruised. I'm gonna sue the bastard. Candy Krakauer saw the whole thing, and she said she would testify, and her husband's firm will take the case on a contingency basis. Bitsy applied a new ice pack to his shiner. I can't believe he hit you. I thought he was the more restrained of the pair. I wonder if it's a Muslim-Jewish thing. If it is, it's a hate crime, and we might get more damages. Plus, maybe I can get the moms or some jail time. Ow! And he touched his face and flinched. Don't be such a baby. I suppose it's lucky he didn't break your glasses. And at the mention of her name, their dog sat up on her hind legs and begged fruitlessly. All I know is as soon as I mentioned her college, Suvardi grabbed up his laptop and did a search. I'll bet he was pulling up Kansas State. That crazy twosome is probably trying to find the girl. I wouldn't put it past him to try to get out there and offer her plenty money to enter their harem or become their wife or whatever. You know they have three wives apiece stashed away in the old homeland, don't you? Jealous, Seymour? Oh, you know there's only one woman for me, Bitsy. And it better be me, Seymour, her violet eyes turning hard. Seymour was more than a little cowed and stood the conversation back to his concern. From what I can gather the, from the fellow in Germany, she's a sweet naif, and, and I doubt at her age and with her background, she's sophisticated enough to handle a full court press from the Hameds. So maybe her family should be spoken with. Let them know what kind of creeps show up when a pretty girl is vulnerable. By the way, what does she look like? Seymour went back to his desk, removed the folder of the contenders, and shuffled through them until he found the publicity photo. This is the girl. Bitsy took the picture and stared at it for a long time. Oh, dear. Look at those innocent eyes. Seymour, give me her home address and phone number. I think we better warn her people. Chapter 22. Better Bedroom Boredom. Byron's heart wasn't in it. Now there was nothing to revenge. He would have Coffin back in the picture. He would put those scenes in the DVD. And when the film was sold to the networks or revived, it would include the restored footage. Plus, he had a good shot at winning an award, or at least have an actor win one for his film. 
Sadly, he was being forced to give a performance for which he was not apt to win an award, the Platinum Pecker, and in truth, one he did not care to give. Encores might be demanded. He was aware of his reputation and Candy's big mouth, so he did not want word spread around town that he could not um, rise to the occasion. And she did own a Bitsy Blaney bar relief. And it was obscene. Apparently, Herman commissioned it from Bitsy when she was trying to make ends meet. And that was its theme, making ends meet. Candy placed it above her headboard as a menu of the joys that might be sampled while bouncing on her box spring. Byron could just imagine the guest murmuring, uh, let's start with that, and then this, and let's finish with some of that bit in the left upper corner. At 2.30 in the afternoon, Candy was well lubricated in more than one way, for which Byron was grateful. He maneuvered her panties to the off position and noted with ill-concealed ennui the de rigueur landing strip. Old-fashioned at heart, Byron longed for the days before bikini waxing, when a bush was a bush and not just something the landscaper planted. Gone was the herpes revenge plan, and he gave thanks for pharmacology and latex as he prepared to prove himself. Problem was, as drunk as she was, Candy wanted foreplay, and Byron was not feeling at all playful. His mood might best be described as, let's get this fucking thing over with. Suddenly, he heard the most chilling sound imaginable, more frightening than the cry of the werewolf, the moan of a ghost, or the snicker-snee of an assassin's sword. The sound of a bedroom door opening. He turned, pulled the bedclothes over his crotch to see the three-piece suited Herman Krakauer entering the room. Herman assessed the situation with admirable sang-froid, smiled broadly, and dropped his pants. Byron was going to get that three-way, but with casting changes. 23. B-M-O-C. It's like falling off a horse. You got to get back on. Problem is, you fell off and nobody wanted to give you a chance to ride as Juo Marx. But under a different name, especially in the small apple, not the big one, just doing 20 minutes opening for a rap group, you're back up on Nag Nelly, and if you bomb, nobody's going to know. Do your opening stuff, but can that Holocaust material. Believe me, nobody's going to laugh when you say Hitler's stage name was Adolf Nanju. And that joke about Eichmann getting his gas bill? That was old when Rodney Dangerfield was in Pampas. And let us choose your stage name for this one performance, okay? The list you gave us don't make it. I mean, Waxy Menorah? Come on already with the phony Jewish names. And do some grass jokes. You ever do any grass, Albert? I know you done blow. How? Gary Busey told me. And beer jokes. Do beer jokes. College kids love their beer. You got any beer jokes, Albert? I mean, beer jokes are easy. I drank so much beer last night, 
My pea had a head on it. Rimshot. They ought to put beer in face cream. When I drink enough, it sure makes my girlfriend look better. Rimshot. Drinking beer don't give you a gut. It's all them pretzels. Rimshot. And grass jokes. College kids do love their grass. You got any grass jokes, Albert? Grass jokes are easy. Uh, how do you get a one-armed pothead out of a tree? You wave. Rimshot. You hear about the stoner who's studying for his urine test? Rimshot. What are you going to buy that who lit up but didn't inhale? A Mr. President. <laughs> Rimshot. You do good, Albert. Maybe you'll be big man on campus. And besides, you do real good. Maybe you get some of that Indian stuff. What Indian stuff? Poonatang. Rimshot. Oh, man. I just killed myself. 24. B.W. O.C. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies and all that's best of dark and bright meet in the aspect of her eyes. And check out that booty. Miss Boop, short blonde curls framing her lovely face, sat in the window of her sorority house front room Innocent as a spring lamb, she was truly unaware that it had become a main thoroughfare. The underclassmen strolled by, surreptitiously glancing at Kansas State's own film star. Well, all right, that's an exaggeration. But she was in the movie, and she had a scene, though it timed out to be about three and a half minutes. But her appearance had been arresting, and the shot of her, bare to the waist, was accompanied by an audible sigh in the audience. She was so frank and sexy in such a healthy, innocent American way, it quite took their breath away. Amazing. There wasn't a leer in the crowd, though afterwards she did figure in some extraordinarily carnal dreams, but also in some touchingly loving ones, too, in some, best of all, a combination. Betty rose to her feet, carrying her second-semester macroeconomic text with her, her head hurting from some of the concepts. All she wanted to do was to be able to run Grandpa's feedlot and maintain the boop hold on the property. He told her in his old country way how his family had been run from hither to yon and then back again by invaders coming from each of the cardinal directions. Only here in Blessed America had they put down roots and been protected from sectarian and ethnic violence. The divine Miss Boop recalled with some concern that Grandpa's conversation wandered a bit from the subject on her last visit home, and her mother said that his nightmares began again. They were to the point of considering pulling a lock on the gun cabinet. The spring evening was slightly humid, but notwithstanding pleasant, and Mademoiselle Boop asked a couple of the girls if they wanted to take a stroll. Happily, for her sake, they said yes. Skulking behind a tree in an outfit worn by Eddie Bracken and too many girls was a parody undergraduate. Prevarti slipped from behind his maple and at a cautious pace shadowed the potential beloved. Fifty yards behind him, Suvardi dressed in Peter Lawford's costume from Good News, 
slipped from behind his tree and tailed his half-brother. And that's the end of the third part of Only Small Actors. This is Coffee Dave. That's K-A-W-F-E-E-D-A-V-E. You can reach me at coffeedave at yahoo.com if you have any comments on this story or any of the others. Until next time, I wish you a good night.